Hello, uh, this is your host, Michael O'Connell. Um, I have some sad news uh, for those who, um, you know, pay attention to digital news and who've been following, you know, sort of the behind the scenes things for the last, you know, 10 or 15 years. Um, Mandy Jenkins, uh, 42, died at her hometown in Zanesville, Ohio on Sunday. I'm not, I don't want to represent myself as like, a really close friend of Mandy's. Mandy was an inspiration to me and the other founders of the It's All Journalism podcast. She came on our podcast in our 24th episode. She rode her bike to our studios on a Saturday morning and talked about crowdsourcing news from, from Twitter. Um, she was something of a, a digital rock star, and she, she inspired us. And I would occasionally run into her at ONA conferences usually. And, you know, she had this amazing smile. Um, she always listened to what your story was. She always told you some wonderful things about what she was doing and the enthusiasm that she had for digital news. And, you know, there are a handful of people that, that we've had on this podcast that have had huge uh, impacts. And, and I would, I would, rank Mandy among them. Um, and so I offer my condolences to her family and her loved ones to sort of honor her memory. And we're going to be playing a, the audio from her last appearance on our podcast, which was February 7th, 2019. Mandy, thank you. And um, here's our conversation with her. Mandy Jenkins is an old friend of the podcast. She's currently a John S. Knight Journalism Fellow at Stanford University, but she has previous stops at Storiful, Digital First Media, Huffington Post Politics, and TBD. Welcome back to the podcast, Mandy. Thanks for having me on again. And just uh, just notice that I'm actually drinking out of an It's All Journalism mug as we speak. You know, and this is something that guests to our podcast get to do sometimes if we like them and we like you and it's always great seeing you at conferences or you know seeing the, the work that you're doing online you blog a lot so it's nice to see your name come up on topics that that we find interesting and uh but before we do any of that tell me about your recent trip to the himalayas i'm very jealous of, of that yeah so uh my friend uh, julia westfall and i we went to uh nepal so we did an eight-day trek to Annapurna Base Camp in the Himalayas, hiking up into the mountains in December because why not? That's just crazy, but it was a it was a lot of fun and a good challenge. Was it something that you'd always sort of dreamed of doing, or it was just like, hey, here's an opportunity? It was one of those things where I always knew I wanted to try out a long hiking trip. You know, something that was going to be a real endurance challenge, and it was just a matter of finding the right place. So uh, we kind of looked at some some options as to where we wanted to go, and Nepal ended up being it. So now you're currently at Stanford. So tell me about the fellowship. What is it you're looking into? At the at the JSK fellowship, you know, we can all, all of us as fellows, and there's 16 of us this year, we have the opportunity to spend our time doing kind of whatever we want, which is really great. So in addition to taking whatever classes that we'd like at Stanford, we also have a research question that we're pursuing. So my question is, what can we learn from fake news purveyors as real news purveyors. And uh, in doing that, I'm going out and I'm actually talking to and interviewing people who have shared disinformation and misinformation online before, and really just getting into their media habits, what they think about social media, what they think about the media, 
and I'm going to be distilling all of that down into a report that I'm going to put out at the end of my fellowship. Cool. And incredibly timely. And it's great that you're talking to purveyors of disinformation because some of them do it quite well. And uh, when you when you think of how many journalists don't do social media or distribute their information online really well, there's a lot there to be learned. Oh, definitely. And I think, too, not enough people talk to the people who are kind of the end users of this. I think there's a lot of assumptions made in journalism about the people who read and believe what they're reading online and very little actual talking to them about it. Yeah, that's for sure. Now, um, the reason I asked you on the podcast was uh, a recent article you wrote for the Neiman Journalism Lab as part of its 2018 journalism wrap-up. The headline was, Fight the Urge to Run Away from Social Media. Now, what, what inspired you to write that? Well, as you know from my many times of being on here, I'm a, I'm a social media junkie and I'm unapologetic about it. And I am friends with a lot of journalists on social media. I'd say most of my social networks are of journalists. And I'm seeing a lot of them writing these farewell posts on Facebook, these long screeds about, you know, because of the recent news on Facebook about you know, everything from kind of their corporate intrigue to their use of private data and the Cambridge Analytica stories and all of that, that they're, they're leaving the platform and they're going to go to insert X new platform that nobody's using here. And I've just, every time I see that, it just, a little part of me dies inside. I'm like, well, you know, other people are still here. Like I'm still here. And as a friend, I want to still know what's going on with you, but I'm not going to go join another social platform that no one else I know is using just to keep up with you. And I think that that's, that's also how readers see it. Yeah. It's sort of this idea. Well, I know I need to do social media, but screw Facebook because they, they do all the stuff that I don't like. Um, I'm going to go, I'm going to move the party over here, but that's actually kind of counter to, uh, you know, the whole sort of approach to social media, which is you go where your readers are, go where they interact. Exactly. And I think too, like there's so much, uh, conversation and kind of digital ink spilled about the problem of disinformation on Facebook. And that's why so many people are saying that they're leaving is, Oh, the, the fake news on here is so rampant. It's like, well, that's the last thing you want to do. If that's the case, as a journalist, why are you leaving and letting letting these disinformation and misinformation providers take it over? The more that we leave, the more they're going to have the market share of attention on there. So now you have a you kind of alluded to this. You have a long history with social media and reader engagement. You're going all the way back to you know 2008 when you were the social media editor at the Cincinnati Enquirer. How has the social media landscape changed for journalists in, in that time? It's been 10 years. Can you believe that? It's been 10 years? It feels longer, to tell you the truth. But, you know, it's it's ancient, ancient times and digital digital uh, clocks, I guess, or whatever, digital calendars. But anyway, go on. I interrupted you. Oh, like the, uh, it, it's definitely changed a lot. I think in the beginning, especially when you're looking at like 2008, really to like 2010 even, Social media was a place for elites, and that included journalists and politicians who were getting on there, business leaders, marketing people, people who were all really good at social media and to some extent were kind of operating under what were new and still feeling out, but were definitely some norms. And since then, you know, lots of other people have joined, which I think has been great because there's a lot more audience that can be reached that way. There's a lot more conversations that can be reached that way. 
but it also is meant that we're constantly dealing with a changing of norms, what's acceptable on social media, how people use it, how people treat one another, and also you know, how they treat us as journalists and how we treat them. I think that that's been hard to adjust to. And I think a lot of, I mean, when we talk about social media, I think mostly what we're talking about are, are, are Facebook and Twitter and, and to a lesser degree, Instagram. Um, but there, and there are other platforms that, that, uh, you know, people are on that journalists, you know, have varying degrees of experience on Reddit for one as one example, but, you know, I'm, I'm going to be a little bit of a curmudgeon here and, and I don't like being a curmudgeon in the, in the social media space because I recognize it's a place where people are, but you know, man, you know, here I am. I work for a news outlet. I'm supposed to communicate with you know my audience on social media, but you know I always feel like an intruder. You know, on the one hand, I view Facebook as a consumer, as somebody who shares information with my friends and my family. But then when I try to enter in the space where, well, I've got all this stuff that I've written that I want to push out there, and and it always feels like an awkward conversation. It always feels like almost a spammy type conversation. It, it doesn't necessarily feel natural. And I know that, you know, in conversations you knew you and I have had in the past, the, the idea is, you know, be conversational, be yourself in, in that space. But I always, I always feel uncomfortable more so in Facebook, I think, because it's so tied to a lot of my family, my friends, that, that sort of side of my life. Um, is this a problem? <laughs> think it is. And I think that it also is, it recognizes how a lot of people use Facebook. I mean, a lot of our audience in journalism are using Facebook for personal reasons. They're connecting with their friends, their family, and they don't want someone who's going to be an intruder. So, so much of it is finding that right balance of what is it that I can give to them that they want, but that also isn't going to be uncomfortable for me. And I think that I've seen journalists who really struck a great balance with that. You know, some of the classics like, like Connie Schultz, you know, who used to be at the Plain Dealer and who's married to Senator Sherrod Brown. She went to my alma mater, Kent State University. So I, I love following her interactions on Facebook because she very much is a conversation leader. And I think that that's a good balance to approach it with, because with, that's the same thing that I am on Facebook with my friends, my family. But also, if I want to start a conversation on there with a larger group, you know, with the people who follow me. I can do that. And it's about taking on that leadership role. And that's the thing that I think turns some journalists off is that unlike on Twitter, for instance, where you can just pump out headlines, you're not necessarily going to do very well on Twitter doing that, but you can, it's comfortable. On Facebook, it's work. It's really hard work to do social media in general well, but you have to be a conversation leader to make Facebook work as a journalist. You've got to go in there and ask questions Take on the hard questions from other people, you know, get, get into the fray a little bit, and also some, sometimes break up fights between other people on your comments. And, and that goes for your friends and family as well as for readers and audience and, and peers that you interact with on Facebook. It takes time, but it can be so valuable. So I know that, you know, my experience, like, uh, you know, being an editor, working for a website that postured itself as, you know, non-political, non-partisan, that, you know, unfortunately, a lot of the stories that we write about today, you know, can very easily be sort of broken down into partisan sides. And what I always found was that on the one hand, those stories kind of did well on Facebook, and they, 
you know, they engendered a lot of comments, but the, the negativity that, you know, is like, you just wait until maybe the fourth or fifth comment, and then suddenly it, it, it turns into a right versus left type of thing, and people arguing, and people posting memes, and then it turns into this really kind of ugly thing. And so then the hard work of, you know, how do you manage that? How do you, you know, when do you make decisions about, do you need to ban somebody? Do you need to delete comments? I mean, what, what is your thoughts about once you get into a situation like that, you know, how do you manage something like that? I think it's really helpful to have guidelines set up for yourself in advance, much like a publication, but I think the same thing for myself. I'm not going to tolerate on my page anybody personally insulting one another. And I make that very clear in the about section. I remind people of that all the time. And I think that it's having rules like that to say, hey, you can share your political opinion, but there won't be any name calling. We're not going to have spamming of this, of, of memes and of and of links that go to false websites, which I will totally knock out. And I will be judge, jury, and executioner on that because it's my page. And um, and generally just people who aren't participating in the spirit of discussion, that people can disagree. But once it gets out of control, you're gone. You have no compunction about, you know, deleting comments and, and banning people? Oh, definitely not. And I mean, I started my, my online career as a moderator of comments which is the most thankless job in the world. And a lot of that is just about having set rules that everybody is aware of. They know that those are there and having to stick to them, even when you don't want to, even if you're like, you know what, that guy was right, but he broke the rules and he's gone. He got warned, now he's gone. That was something that that we kind of came to in the website that I worked at. Our sister station, as a matter of fact, they just completely turned off their comments and then they just sort of, relied strictly on Facebook and Twitter for their engagement. And I'm not sure how much they, they did moder- you know, moderating, but you know, when we, we still had comment, uh, comment section, I would moderate that. But then I would also, you know, I was a lot more active in moderating the Facebook feed. And it was, you know, just sort of the situation that you described where, you know, especially when something turned really political and then you had name calling, it was just like, it, there usually was like a cycle. You'd have sort of spotty, moments here and there, but suddenly some story would come in and there would just be a huge ton of different comments and they were vitriolic and you just went in there and you were throwing people out, you're banning people, you're, you're deleting comments. And then when I, you know, I very much would get into the practice of when I had an instance like that, I, w- I would just go back in, I would find uh, our document that had our rules and I would repost it as a new post and say, Hey, this is just, rem-, you know, I had to you know, deal with a lot of uh, negative comments in our feed here. Just a reminder to everybody, here are the rules of the sandbox. How do you engender conversations? You know, rather than just posting today's headline, you know, how do you get people to comment on it? How do you get people to engage with with your story? And I think that's been the the part of social media that I think has been the hardest for people to grasp. And then they kind of got away from it when, especially on Facebook, the algorithms were more favorable to news sites for a while. But so much of it goes into, for one thing, the original story choice of why did you write this story? Why did the story come about? Because if it is just the same exact headline that everybody else has and a story that everybody else has and the same thing that everybody's doing, then yeah, people are probably going to comment on it unless you happen to be the first one that they saw. But if you're asking a question that people want to answer, if you're out there with a story that people want to talk about, that is naturally a talker, 
it kind of writes itself. You know, putting out there that this is something that's new, it's interesting, this is going to affect your life, this is how it affects your life. What are you going to do about this? What do you think about this? How is this going to affect you? You know, getting provocatively into people's lives is going to start a conversation. And if we're going out there with the same exact thing that everyone else is having, at best, you're going to just get people fighting because they wanted somewhere to fight. Yeah. On the one hand, though, that that's a, <laughs> that that can be a service as well. You're giving giving people a place, but the, you know if that's you know if that's just what you want to be a place where people fight. Then you know that's a different type of experience that you're creating. But you know, I agree with you. I think the best stories, the stories that perform well, you know, in the end, you know, what we want to do is get a lot of eyes on our content. We want people to read our stories. So kind of have to balance what your mission is with you know providing content that they're particularly interested in. But hopefully those things are, are in line, but, you know, realizing something in the news is going to have an impact on your readers and then presenting it in that way on your website. And then taking that, you know, Hey, we wrote the story because this is going to affect your pay. This is going to affect, you know, your taxes is going to affect your livelihood, your, you know, how often, you know, what your vacation is, whatever. Once they see that, that there's an impact to it, they're going to read your story. They're going to, com they're more likely to comment than just like, you know, here's the, 50th meeting of this committee about this topic that and they've only incrementally moved this story forward right and i think too that's why so many stories that are kind of out of the box really interesting profiles you know kind of strange twists people they've never seen before stories they've never heard before that's why those perform so well on social media because people read that story they're like i've never seen this before i want to share this with other people and to some extent, that's that's exactly the measurement we should all be looking for is I've learned something from this. This touched me in some way so much that I want to go out and give this to everyone else I know. And I think, too, even if there are the stories that are kind of the ones that we have to write, you know, it's day 37 of the shutdown. Here's what's going on. I know it's not yet, but we might get there. But if it's just kind of a, another update on the ongoing thing and there's nothing new in there, you know, maybe that story does need to kind of be updated on the site, but not everything has to be pushed out on social media. And it's in this, this mentality that it kind of developed over the last 10 years that every single story has to be pushed has led to a total dilution of the brands on social media. And it's led to more content than anyone can possibly read. And so much of it is just boring and it's not useful to have on social media people who are interested in that story whose lives are affected by it are gonna find that <laughs> if it's if it's something that is for a very particular audience but everything else think about the best stories to put out there the things that are really going to be key and maybe only do two or three a day instead of 20 25 50 a day this idea that everything that you write has to be up on social media. I mean, maybe you put everything you write up on, on Twitter just because, you know, Twitter's a <laughs> bulletin board sometimes. Right. But where you're looking for active engagement, where you're looking for like, you know, on, on Facebook. Yeah, the two or three stories. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. You know, there's also this feeling with the algorithms, especially what's happened over the last year on Facebook, you know, as we're trying to figure out, how can I be sure that, that what we post is going to appear on somebody's feed? Maybe your, your fear is, makes you post more than you actually should because, well, this is all a gamble anyway. But maybe, you know, following the strategy you suggest, which is, you know, just double down on the, on the content that's 
going to perform well in that space. Right. And, and also thinking about presentation within that space. You know, it's not to say you want to do it all the time, but you know, maybe something would do really well as a slideshow on Facebook with a collection of photos and some text and a link going out where you're not sharing the link directly all the time. Or, you know, you're doing like like there was with video when it wasn't just the full pivot to video apocalypse, that creating something that is meant to perform on Facebook, that is built for that audience and is built for that place, still works. It's just when you do nothing but that and you're pumping that out all the time and you put all of your resources in the one basket, that that's where things can go wrong. I love that you call it the the full pivot to uh, video apocalypse because that's what it kind of was. There was this weird moment a few years ago when, you know, Facebook, for its own reasons, decided that, that they wanted to get everybody to Facebook Live and newsrooms that shouldn't be producing video were producing video or maybe shouldn't be producing the volume of video that they were doing, were turning everything into video, hiring people to dedicating resources to, to video. What are your thoughts on, on that and how that kind of shook out? For one thing, I think that it was, it was predictable that these newsrooms, assuming that this was going to be the trend forever, was just so foolish at the very beginning. That this would be, you know, it's a, it's a corner, it's a part of what we do. Very, very few newsrooms needed to completely turn over everything they were doing and go to this because anything that's social, that's digital, is in a way ephemeral. It's just the nature of technology and it's the nature of interest, even aside from Facebook and its intentions. You know, the idea that this is happening on this platform, so therefore we have to change all of our strategy, all of our personnel, all of our plans to cater to this, it's just it's crazy. No business should ever operate that way. Yet a lot of businesses did. And a lot of people lost their jobs because of that. And I think that also assuming that anything that you don't own, a platform you don't own, a distribution network you don't own, that's, that's a gamble even within itself. So you want to put enough in to make it worthwhile. But to go all in on any one thing, that doesn't make sense anywhere in our business, no matter what the platform is. So way back when, when social media kind of started and it was trying to convince news outlets to post their content to the web, there were a lot of editors who were kind of reticent to do it because like, well, why should I put my content up on Facebook or why should I put it up on Twitter, you know, when I don't own that platform and I want people coming to my website. I don't want them to be reading these stories on, on a platform I don't own. Are we back to kind of that spot? I mean, do we need to be more careful about thinking about our relationship and what we post and, and our, our involvement and our, our investment in, in Facebook? Well, I definitely think we need to be more thoughtful about it because I think that um, that was so much my job early in the, in the social media years was convincing people to put their stuff on Facebook and Twitter. But then we went way too far the other way where there's just so much investment in writing for Facebook, writing for Twitter, making content, making videos that's specific for that at the expense of other things in the newsroom, where these platforms are just a channel. You know, that's one of the places where we talk to our audience. It's an important place. And it's it can be a real center of how we interact with people, but it's not the only thing and it can't be the the top priority for everyone. I mean, there are some outlets where it really makes sense for them to put a lot more investment in than others. But yeah, being more thoughtful about what we're putting out there that again, going back to the volume, 
the story choice. Because don't put out more than you can actually support conversation on. And also, you know, not just bombarding people. Because, you know, they all are following a lot more people than they used to be. They're seeing a lot more than they used to. The attention economy is still very much a competitive place. If we, if we want to be a source where people know that they can go to get something that's worthwhile, then we have to make worthwhile choices ourselves. So let me ask you, what do you think about what Facebook has done in the aftermath of, of the 2016 election to sort of address bots, address false news sites? Do you think that they've you know, done enough? to sort of garner trust in their consumers in, in the news media? Or do you think there's still more that needs to be done? I think that they've certainly done a lot. And I think a lot of it has been, honestly, within our own industry, having more people understand how Facebook works has been one big element of that. I think, too, that there's probably a lot going on behind the scenes that we don't know about that I expect is actually working better than anything that they do talk about. I know I see a lot less uh, disinformation than I used to. And I look for it. I mean, it's my job is to look look for it. And I'm seeing less of it. And I don't know if any of the efforts that we've really read about did that, what they really go out and talk about. But whatever they're doing, I think it's it's helping. You know, a lot of it's stuff that they can fix within their algorithm of looking for certain patterns and looking for certain, uh, you know, trends from particular sites. And they have that kind of information. And it's the kind of stuff that, unfortunately, they never talk to us in the media about it because I would be fascinated to know about these things that I assume happen. But I, I think too that it's something where it wasn't entirely their fault. I mean, they had the platform for it and they had the technology to fix some elements of that. But I think too, they've gotten more than their share of blame for a lot of that. It's like, well, yeah, you, they had the platform. People were able to take advantage of exactly what it was built to do. And I think they've been very aware of what they need to do with that. But there's also been a lot of other factors at play that I think are also making an impact. You know, a lot of it is just making the public more aware of what this problem is, which uh, you know we in the media have a very huge role in, too. And I think that there's been a difference on that side as well of people being at least a little bit more aware that, that this is a problem, where it comes from, why it happens, and, and hopefully at least are, are taking a little bit of a more careful approach in what they themselves are reading and sharing. There's been a, a great ed education among Facebook users following the 2016 election. I, you know, certainly the 2018 election, I saw a ton less content on both sides of the fence. One hopes that maybe some of that was the, the Facebook thing or Facebook dealing with it, but also, you know, maybe people being smarter about what – being a little more wary about sharing content that they weren't necessarily sure where it came from. Yeah, yeah, no, I definitely saw that same thing, especially when you talked about kind of this fire hose of everything just a couple of years ago. And uh, you saw that in the trending topics. I think getting rid of that to some extent helped. And I think, too, just the, the flow back and forth between platforms, I think that still happens, but I think that they're well way more aware of that. I mean, I think they're looking for that sort of thing on their side, or behind the scenes at Facebook of what. What's running rampant elsewhere that's going to come here or is probably already here and that we can take down and, and diffuse the problem as much as possible. So we're, we're here at the beginning of a new year. What are, you, what are your kind of hopes for where social media will be at the end of this year? What are the things that you're, you're hoping will happen? Well, I'm, I'm for one thing, of course, hoping that 
journalists aren't all actually going to to leave Facebook and and take their take their expertise and their wisdom elsewhere. It's important that we're still out there and that we're still interacting in that space. So like they, that's a hope that they stay there because I I also see so many people like, "Well, I'm going to put everything into Twitter." And Twitter God love it. I don't have the relationship with Twitter I used to because to me it just it feels like a place where journalists go to impress each other. They're not necessarily talking to real people there. Absolutely no one I know in my family, many of whom are professionals, actually use Twitter or have ever even seen Twitter. All they know about it is that that's where the president hangs out. So going there and investing in that as a sole way of interacting with audience, it's just going to close them off. So as long as people are finding ways, and by people I mean journalists, are finding ways where they're connecting with their audience this year, that's going to be so critical. We have an election coming up, God help us, in another year. There's going to be so much going on that's so much need for the conversation to be led by somebody. And I'd prefer that it was still us having a huge role in that, or at least you know helping to moderate that and make it a more intelligent and well-reasoned discussion. <laughs> And we need to be there. We need to be able there to answer questions and provide information. I mean, anything that, that makes us less accessible, I think, is a bad choice, which is one of the reasons why, again, I wanted to talk to you because I saw all these stories of, of these people, you know, getting on their high horse and saying, oh, I'm leaving Facebook because. And again, you know, maybe it's <laughs> maybe the better way to do it is is not to run away when something's bad, but actually use that as an opportunity to try to improve the situation. Your absence may actually make things worse in some ways, but, you know, and maybe for you or for your publication or the stories that you're trying to, to share. I don't know. I we certainly hope they do. And I think, you know, that it's been really heartening for me to see people who maybe aren't necessarily mainstream media who are, who are really making a go of it on Facebook. And I think we have a lot we can learn from them of you know, alternative news sources who are not necessarily fake news, <laughs> but you know, people who are cultivating community and people who are out there making that effort. And I think that we could learn from them and partner with them as well. Yeah, and us showing our, our best practices, I think also helps to raise the level of the conversation. If people see how we roll out stories and you know, the trans with transparency and, and applying sort of ethical standards, I keep going back to this New York Times, the daily podcast that, that happened, I think it was a couple of days before Thanksgiving, they interviewed this couple who ran a Facebook, a right-wing Facebook page. And it's a great lesson in, you know, somebody taking advantage of the Facebook economy um, and applying absolutely no journalism ethics to it, that, that, that they made it a, a point because they saw that their readership went up, their shares went up when they put inflammatory headlines. So they were their goal was to create the most inflammatory headlines possible so that they could get the greatest number of, of clicks and the greatest number of shares. They were able to drive, you know, generate great amounts of revenue because of this. And, you know, any, any journalist, uh, digital journalist worth their salt, has, has, has come to the point where like, well, you know, I can make this, this headline a little more clicky, a little more controversial, but what does that mean for the story, what does that mean for your publication? I mean, are you that type of publication? And so fortunately, knock on wood, most of us don't make the bad choice. We make the ethical choice. It's fascinating to see what happens when somebody decides, yeah, this is this is the Wild West. I'm going to completely take advantage of it. 
and they got shut down. They got shut down like a lot of other people by um, Facebook changing its algorithms and the way it was uh, driving traffic. So hopefully a positive sign, I guess. Mandy, this has uh, been a great conversation. I always love talking to you, seeing you at conferences. I wish you luck with the fellowship, and I look forward to hearing more about that later this year. You take care. You too. Thanks a lot for having me on again. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. It's February already. Why haven't you signed up for the It's All Journalism newsletter? You get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming episodes. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. It takes a lot of people to put together an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music. Amelia Brust helped with our booking. Nicholas Hunter brought in a web assist. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening.